welcome to episode 215 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, old brother. Listen, last time we started an episode, I joked about we should just start with asking catechism questions instead of like the, hey, how are you doing? And I don't have one in front of me, so I figured we, we did try to do something different here. So what say you about how we can make this different? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I rarely, this is, maybe this is also a little bit too much information. I rarely listen back to all of the episodes that we record. That, that yeah. might be surprising for some people, but partly that's because I'm not a huge fan, like most people, of my own voice. Well, actually, hopefully people are okay with my voice. I mean, I'm not a huge fan, like most people, of listening <laughs> to their own voice. And so that's part of the reason why I don't do it. And then, of course, I think of all the things I wish I'd said instead of the things I actually said. But I happen to listen back to the a large portion, or at least the first portion of this last episode, and you did something that I thought was like absolutely hilarious where there's like a really long pause in the episode. Cause I said something like, this is what we would do or how we make this less awkward. And it's just, just a pause. Just plot, yeah. And I, even I was fooled by it. I was like, Oh, did that hold on a second? Did that just cut out on me? And then <laughs> this is also the episode where somehow I forgot to put the intro music in. <laughs> yes. I thought I was going to ask you about that. I yeah. listened to it and I was like, oh, we just started talking. I was like, is that on me or why is there no music? No, no. There's a setting in the audio engineering software that if I I push mute on the track that has the audio so I can hear the voices and get it lined up. But if I forget to unmute it, then when I export the file, it exports it with that track muted. You'd think they'd have like a like a feature that's like a little paperclip pops up and is like, it looks like you have a track muted. Are you sure you want to have that track muted? And I'd be like, shut up Clippy. And then I'd be like, Oh, actually you're right. Thanks. Thanks Clippy. I'm sorry, Clippy. Please come back to me. I'd like to think it was like, it's a little microphone. Mikey. Mikey. I like that. Yeah. And he's like, did you mean to put music in behind this? You have a muted track. Are you sure you'd like to export with the muted track? (laughs) Stupid. Why Uh, would you have a muted track on your export? That's actually really, really good. See, yeah. this is authentic podcasting, loved ones. Like you get with us like full transparency. What you see <laughs> or what you hear is what you get. And what you get might not be that much. We're okay with it's that. It's true. Yes, it's true. Well, we have quite an episode today. So we should get right into affirmations and denials since we know that's like a 40-minute segment now. <laughs> but we should try to keep it quick. So why don't, why don't you start yes. off with your affirmation this week? All right. It's going to be fast, I promise you. This week, I'm affirming with another wonderful piece of literature. And at the risk of making it maybe a little bit too long, let me say this. I don't know why, but for the longest time, I just never considered the writings of J.C. Ryle. I think it was because I knew of his Anglican connections. And for some reason, I just threw the baby out with the bathwater. And then we happened to kind of read his work on Treatise on Prayer, and it was really, really good. And then my father, for my most recent birthday, got me a copy of Practical Religion by J.C. Ryle. And this book is phenomenal. Like He's quickly becoming, I would say, one of my, my top five writers. This book is so intensely pastoral and wonderful, and there's so much meat, and it's so devotional. I actually can't recommend it or affirm with it highly enough. So if you, like me, maybe just kind of thought of J.C. Ryle on the peripheral, bring him into the center and read some of his work and start with Practical Religion. It's It's a tome. It's like 400 pages. But 
it's so wonderfully devotional. You can, you can pick it up in pieces because he's each of the chapters basically pa- papers that have been put together or that he's written and now been accumulated. So this is just so good. I just finished the one on prayer. And man, was I like just hit upside the head. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm going to steal a little bit of his thunder. And this is a spoiler for that chapter. But basically, to paraphrase him, you know, just all like the normal stuff about prayer. Like, if you've been a, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you read stuff on prayer, you tried to study it, you hear all this, the same things. You're like, okay, I get that stuff. And yet somehow my prayer life is still really not robust. Yeah. And he goes in this whole section where to paraphrase, he basically says like, if you've ever thought there's a hierarchy in the Christian life, we looked at a person, uh, a brother or sister and thought, man, they're on fire for the Lord. Man, God has control of their life. He just says, that's because they pray and you yeah. don't. <laughs> and I was, I resonated with that. I was like, right on. He was like, yeah. if you want power, if you're missing something, it's because you don't pray. Yeah. And I was like, all right, here we go. He just laid down the gauntlet. There's something wonderfully British about JC Ryle, because <laughs> you, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about when I say this. He, He's so like dry and straightforward that things like that, when he says that, you almost kind of expect a little bit of a wink. Like, yes, like it's so dry. It's almost like the delivery of a joke. But it it but it hits you that hard because he's not joking, but it's still such a dry delivery. Yes. And he he's he's a fantastic writer. It's funny, you know who you know who really loves JC Ryle? Who? Jordan Embry from the Reformed Pilgrims loves oh, really? JC Ryle. Excellent. If you listen to his sermons, which you can get through the mega feed, uh, you will hear him quote JC Ryle all the time. That's true. And he he kind of affectionately calls him the Bishop Ryle. He, he like uses the it. formal title, which I like. I love it. So. Well, I'm pleasantly surprised. So I hope that maybe others will be as well. So I'm affirming with JC Rowell's practical religion. It's a great gift for yourself or for a loved one in this midwinter's no reason season of gift giving. Yes. How yes. about you? So I'm affirming um, something that I realized I thought was idiosyncratic to me, but I'm finding out is not. I'm affirming when your brain does autocorrect for itself. And so I stumbled okay. on the fact that this is not just me because I was talking to my wife the other day about autocorrect on my phone and I made a joke about how my brain autocorrects certain things. And she said, yeah, mine too. And we started talking about the things that it autocorrects. Do you know what I'm talking about? Does, does your brain do this or do you uh, not so know what I'm you talking gotta about? You got to give me an example because I think so I know where you're going. My example is that I cannot type the name Chris without typing Christ uh, and having to T. fix it. Or my, I automatically capitalize the word father and son. So I frequently have to type in notes in my work at the hospital where it's like I spoke with the patient's father and I constantly have to like go back and fix my notes so I'm not randomly capitalizing the word father in the middle of a medical note. Um, <laughs> so that that's what I mean. And, and I think, you know, why, why I'm affirming this is I think it's an interesting sort of like little quirk of the mind, but it shows that like... Uh, t- like your brain adapts to things like we think of our brains and our like knowledge as like almost like a fixed set of information. And we, we add to that information, but we don't change the information that's there or the arrangement of it, but it really, like we really do. Like my, my fingers automatically go to that T after I type C H R I S not any other word necessarily that has an I S in it, just C H R I S my brain, just my synapses fire and make that connection. Right. Um, so I'm affirming that, you know, I'm sure there's some spiritual application about the renewing of your mind or something, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> we could go there, but we got to keep well this done. short, but it, I'm affirming that. Cause I thought it was a funny little quirk and I'm sure like other people have that experience. Do you have any words like that, that yes. when you, when you try to type, what's an example for you? 
So that's a good question. I'm trying to think of some, I know I have, this happens to me all the time. Some of that I chalk up to like muscle memory in, mm-hmm. in typing, which I think is just accentuated by what you're talking about. This happens to me a lot with, uh, you know, you get used to where, wherever you work, there's that particular language in your discipline. And so I find that I end up typing those words over and over again. So if I get close, if I'm typing a word that's close to that word, that yeah. the word is just going to pop out. So like any financial related word, things like rates, budget, stuff like that pops out quite a bit. I do the Christ thing. If somebody's name is Chris, I almost always have to double check that email because I'm pretty sure I'm going to write dear Christ or good morning Christ. <laughs> I've done that in real emails that, I, that I've sent. So it's always a little bit interesting, but it's kind yeah. of like when you in that, I was, it was must've been like episode four or something like that, where you talked about how you said uh, you were in yes. like a meeting and you yes. said, well, just theologically speaking, yes. this is how I justify. I don't remember exactly what the example yes. was. I was just going to say that that's happened to me more than once. Yeah. I was going to ask you if it happens verbally because there's certain like turns of phrase that we tend to use yeah. and theological and its implications. That for me happens all the time. That is, that's happened to me in several meetings where instead of saying the word technological, I use the word theological. So I'll say like, well, that decision just has theological implications and we'll be talking about like a piece of software. (laughs) And then there's just quiet in the room because they're like, I have no idea what that means or why he's even bringing that up right now. Yeah. So verbally, does that happen to you? It does. Uh, I I commonly, I don't lead staff meetings anymore because I'm not a supervisor anymore. When I was a supervisor, I had to really consciously, intentionally uh, not say let's pray at the end of a meeting or like when I would say like, let's get started um, or open the meeting. You know, I would, I would have to like consciously not open it. Like I was opening a prayer service. Um, The other thing that happens a lot is if I'm talking to someone on the phone who is a similar age and has a similar timber in her voice, a a female caller to my wife, I have to like really consciously Uh, not say love you at the end of the phone call. And I've, I've done that to patients where I say, love you bye, And you, you just, you don't come back from that. You just have to laugh at it and and be done with the conversation. I've had patients say love you to me in the same kind of like slip of the slip of the tongue sense. That's a, an awkward sell lately. And I don't know why, uh, lately when I, uh, leave a voicemail for someone, I start to say Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. Like it's like my brain has jumped back into an old track because I used to work at Gordon Conwell in the mailroom and the mailroom also did the switchboard. So I was constantly saying, thank you for calling Gordon Conwell. How may I direct your call? Uh, and for some reason now that's like when I say, I say the section of gastroenterology, I start to say the section of Gordon Conwell. It's, it's sort of a weird, I don't know, maybe I have like a brain aneurysm or something. Apparently the love you thing is somewhat more common than I thought. I know yeah. many people who have fallen under that. I remember when I was much, much younger and first really learning to maybe read the scriptures. I remember having maybe what a lot of Christians get like that kind of NEV, uh, NEV. See, that was a pun. That was a slip. See, NEV is net economic value. That's, mm-hmm. that's something in my discipline. I meant to say NIV and NEV just came out. So there we go. So in the new international version, uh, of the Bible. I remember reading that. And I remember at the time my um, answering the phone and my parents, you'll appreciate this. Of course, you know, my parents very, very well. They had a very prescribed method of how you were to answer the phone. And so for some reason I answered the phone, I'd been reading the Bible and reading it really for the first time on my own. And I remember this, I answered the telephone and for some reason, what came out is hello, Jesus loves you. It just came out. <laughs> 
and it was somebody from my father and it was somebody from the church. It was actually an elder. And so my father got on the phone after I like recovered myself. My father got on the phone and this elder was like so impressed. He's like, I cannot believe that you have your children answer the phone that way. That is so fantastic. And my father didn't tell them otherwise. <laughs> so it was great. I do it on the show all the time. Every time I try to give the phone number for our voicemail and I slip and say 603 instead of 607, it's that same thing. It's like your brain autocorrects into certain ways of thinking and speaking and typing and even like walking. Like sometimes I'll find myself walking a certain direction at the hospital and I'll, I'll have to stop and be like, why am I walking this direction? And then I'll realize like, oh, I used to work in this office down this hallway. And like all of a sudden my brain Whatever it was, my brain autopiloted to that. Um, yeah. I still have trouble remembering to call the grocery store that we shop at Price Chopper. I still say stop and shop, even though I've lived <laughs> here now for over five years and there's not a stop and shop right. within like 20 or 30 miles that I'm even aware of. I still well, here, say stop and shop. Here's the reason why this is such a great affirmation, because I think sometimes, or maybe even most of the time, people perceive this thing as a negative of the human condition, that somehow we get locked into these like ruts where we can't seem to extract ourselves from things that we know are incorrect. I want to turn that around. I think this is where you're going with it, obviously, is that this just shows, especially for parents, that being trained up in good theology means that we get this wonderful muscle memory, like we talked about before, where it is so beneficial to us that we revert back to the scripture. So if we keep marinating ourselves, we keep asking the spirit to fill us and then give us guidance as we understand, study the scriptures, that that is such a wonderful thing that it means our minds can be trained up to such a degree that if or when the scriptures are taken away from us, such that we don't have access to them in the same way that we used to, or that we're in situations where we're called upon to act in a way that's loving and consistent with what the scriptures teach us, that we're able to do that by the power of the Holy Spirit in the training that we've undergone. That's such a wonderful thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, like I was listening, here's like a sub affirmation. There's a new podcast that uh, the guys over at Assurance of Pardon are sort of helping launch called nurture and admonition Great and name. i don't remember i think it's gate i think it's gage's wife or maybe it's scott's wife his one of their wives and then like the the children and youth pastor at their church is doing the podcast and they used an analogy i think they said they got it from rod, rod rosenblatt this is like super sub nested citations here Boom. um i think they got it from rod, rod, rod rosenblatt But the analogy was when you're teaching children or anyone, but they were talking about children, catechisms, it's kind of like when uh, a little boy wears his dad's suit. It Mm. looks a little silly. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But as the boy grows, he grows into the suit rather than fitting the suit to him. And the catechisms work similarly, where I actually had this happen at work, where I I was sort of on the outskirts of a conversation. It was happening kind of in the other room. And somehow they were talking about the Bible and somebody said something about it along the lines of like, well, the Bible's just full of, it's just there to teach you a bunch of old superstition. And I was able to sort of jump in because I was walking by and I see, well, that's not really what the Bible's about. And they said, well, what, what is the Bible about? And it was almost like they said it like they thought they had me. And without even thinking, it wasn't, it wasn't a conscious thing. I said, well, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. 
Right. And they, nice. they were like, what in the world? How do you like it was like they didn't they had never had anyone actually answer that question before. Right. Well, that's just the third question to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And that's be, like so ingrained in my head now that like I don't even have to think about it. We're going to we're going to the topic we're going to talk about tonight, which I promise you we'll get to. But the topic we're going to talk about tonight <laughs> is another one of those things. If right. if I ask somebody, well, how is it that we become partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? Well, I can very quickly say we become partakers of the redemption purchased just by Christ, by the effectual application of it by God's spirit to his right people. Like, that's a paraphrase. We'll read the actual one later. But those kinds of muscle memory things, they certainly can be negative. When I'm trying to give someone a phone number and I can't get past the fact that I just want to say 603, you know, and I want to repeat the number that I, I leave on 100 voicemails every day and I can't get past that, that's not great. But when I can quickly give a theological answer, or even better, when I'm faced with a situation and the very structures of my brain have been hacked and rewritten with good theology from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, that is exactly why God designed our brain to do this Amen. kind of thing. Whether it's Bible memory, whether it's a catechism, whether it's remembering, you know, that my wife's birth date is a certain day, like there's certain things we just have to remember. And the way that I think about it is if I had to think, consciously think about every step that it took to get in my car, drive to work, if I had to consciously think of all of those steps, I would never get to work. I would, I would like make it halfway there and it would overwhelm me. But because my brain is plastic and it's able to adapt, adapt and sort of ingrain things into it to free me up from higher level thinking, like that's a blessing that God has given the, the human race that um, animals don't have. So I'm affirming right all of that, that whole complex of things. <laughs> that was great. This is why we can make podcasts or single episodes just out of the affirmations and by way of sub, sub, sub affirmation. If you're looking for an interesting type of reading that would affirm all that, but is outside of like the explicitly Christian, the book Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman mm. is, says exactly what you just said. And I think that that book is 100% doxology because it, all, it talks about all the things that we just yeah. said that are clearly impounded in the scriptures that we take for granted. And yet here's a lot of really smart people trying to conceptualize it and articulate it. And we want to be like, yeah, of course we know we, we did the catechisms. We know <laughs> yeah. this already. Of course. Yeah. So let's move on to denials. What are you denying this week, Jesse? I'm going to keep it quick here as well. And that is, I think that in this midwinter's quote holiday season and quote, there's lots of contentiousness about flavors and flavor profiles. This seems to be a thing in the holidays, at least in the, in the Western culture. We have lots of particular flavors that we associate with those holiday experiences. It's true. And I've just finally came to the place where I'm willing to admit, I think I just don't like something. I've tried it long enough. It's associated with the, in, the Christmas holiday in particular. And I had it in a beer recently. And I guess this is like the hallmark of, of like, I almost said Christian, see again, of like Christmas types of beer. I'm denying against cloves. I just don't think I like them. I don't understand them. I think it's a weird flavor. It's kind of unnecessary. And it spices the heck out of something to a degree that I, I feel like it's not as enjoyable, at least for me. So am I wrong or am I right? How do you feel about the clove flavor? I mean, I don't even know that I could explain what the clove flavor it's like cinnamon right kind of yeah it's like it's like bad cinnamon <laughs> i don't know like it's I, the thing is i only know it when i taste it because so that's a really great point i'm not sure how to describe it i just know i don't like it yeah i realize now that i think my phone might be spying on our entire life because i just tried to type in <laughs> 
what does cloves taste like? Yeah. And I thought that you were going to say you finally have decided that you don't like olives and you're going to stop trying. That's what I thought you were talking uh, about. But when I typed in what does cloves taste like, my phone said, did you mean what does olives taste like? Wow. So I'm going to throw my phone away, but let me try this again. Yeah, that's so I don't know how to describe that flavor. I just know that it is its own thing. Well, maybe is that possible? Cloves just taste like cloves. Like it's it's not like it's going to taste like chicken. It tastes like its own thing. Yeah, but I don't know. It's, it's like to me, it's kind of like a funky off flavor. And but apparently like cloves in drinks in particular around the holiday season in the Western culture is the jam. Yeah. And I just cannot get down with it. I, for the longest time, I was like, I want to embrace what is seasonal. So I'm not willing to throw this out. Now yeah. I've just finally got to the point where I'm like, I don't know what that is, but I do not like it. Well, so here's what I'm here's what I'm gleaning from the interwebs. This is from thrivecuisine.com. I don't know how credible or uncredible this is, so take it for what it is. But it says, in essence, cloves a clove is sharper than cinnamon, less floral than cardamom. And probably most closely related to nutmeg in flavor. So mm. it seems like if you're going to use, if you want any of those flavors, just use cinnamon, cardamom, right. or nutmeg. So, yeah, I think it says it's warming with, uh, it's warming with the interesting tongue numbing quality of nutmeg <laughs> if applied directly to the tongue. What? So I don't know why. why. You know, okay. So here's what I've learned. The reason I have an issue with clove is it's basically cinnamon or nutmeg trying too hard. I don't yeah, get down exactly. with that. Just, just be your, just be cinnamon or yeah. be like just nutmeg. be yourself. Just be yourself, cloves. As long Stop as yourself is not cloves. Else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a fan of nutmeg in general. That's part of why I hate anything pumpkin spice it, it, because it's not pumpkin spice. It's just nutmeg. And I think like that's probably why it's associated with Christmas cloves. It's like nutmeg, cinnamon, right. cinnamon cookies, like that kind of complex of things. They probably use cloves just because it's stronger. So like they can use less of it to, to ratchet that taste I, up. I guess. I think though, again, like lots of recipes and lots of drinks like show that one of the ingredients is cloves or they advertise like this has got cloves is if people are like looking at options and they're like, I want something that's got cloves in it. So it's possible it's its it's its own thing. I'm sure that somebody's going to school us on this and be like, here's how this all works and here's why cloves are necessary. But it does seem to me at this moment that they're more a result of the fall than they are of anything else. And so I'm just willing to deny them outright. All right. I can get behind that. Yeah. What about you? What are you denying? So this is one of those um, denials that I, I want to be... I want to put a disclaimer up front. Everybody fails at this area at some point. We have, I'm sure, if not, we will. I'm denying not stewarding your platform. And what I mean by this is oh, wow. there are various platforms that everybody has, right? Everyone has a platform of some sort, whether it's it's the book recommendation you make to a coworker or in the case that I'm thinking of, and I will, I'll give specifics because I don't, I don't like this whole like vague booking, beating around the bush kind of thing. But in this case, it was a, it was a podcast that I think just blew it in terms of how they utilize their platform. So there's a podcast that I listen to called the London Lyceum. And generally speaking, I think this is a phenomenal podcast. Um, it's, it's analytical theology, uh, which is tends to be the more philosophical, 
rigorously logical branch of theology, specifically by guys who affirm the 1689 London Baptist Confession. And one of the critiques that I have about analytical theology in general, at least in my experience, my, my admittedly limited experience with analytical theology, is they tend to um, underemphasize the rigidity of, of theology. And analytical theology tends to be a lot about asking particular kinds of philosophical questions and not as much about, at least in my experience, as much about coming to conclusions than uh, you say like a, a systematic or dogmatic theology, which really, really ends up being mostly about kind of the conclusions you reach, even though the, the process that you get there is important. It's the conclusions that are important. And this podcast recently had a Unitarian named Dale Tuggy, who is uh, probably one of the leading uh, academic Unitarians in anywhere. Um, very well spoken, sharp guy, um, probably has a better grip on the overall uh, Bible than most uh, people do. Very similar, actually, in in terms of his temperament and the way that he reacts and interacts with the Orthodox faith, uh, lowercase o Orthodox faith, to someone like a. Um, oh, my brain just left me. Um, the guy from Chapel Hill, the New Test, Bart Ehrman. He's oh. very similar to a Bart Ehrman well in done. terms of his like his attitude. Um, and I don't mean that in a positive way. And so they had him come on the show and basically gave him a platform, um, an opportunity to just espouse his views, which included saying very derogatory things about the Orthodox faith and those right. who hold it and and making people who hold to a Trinitarian view of of, of the scripture uh, basically sound like back backcountry rubes who don't know what they're talking about. And if you just if you just get past all your hangups about tradition and orthodoxy. If you just keep it past that, then of course you're going to be Unitarian. Kind of that perspective, kind of like Bart Ehrman's perspective. Like, well, if you can just get past this idea that the scriptures are inspired, you're going to see how many issues there really are. Right. right? And so I don't have a problem giving other people and other perspectives a voice. What I have a problem with and where I think they, they missed on this uh, is not responding to that. And so they basically gave him an hour to espouse his view. They gave him an hour and basically didn't challenge him. Um, maybe they're going to do a full episode at a later point that responds to it. Maybe they're not. I don't know. But here's the scenario that I think comes about that makes me always feel like when I give voice to bad teaching that I need to respond to it and in the same context give voice to good teaching right. is... There may be somebody who listened to that episode and that's the only episode they're ever going to hear. And right. they were convinced by Dale Tuggy because he was given honestly by itself, a compelling, uh, well thought out, well articulated argument for a Unitarian reading of the scriptures unaddressed and unanswered. Mm -hmm. And so there may be a person who listens to that, who is now going to be become a Unitarian and hold that view until they die. And they will, they will suffer in hell for all eternity because of it. And so when we have a platform, and as I said, everybody has a platform, whether it is a small platform or a big platform, uh, whether it's making a book recommendation to your coworkers or whether it is teaching at a big conference, like the gospel coalition, everybody has a platform of some sort. We have a responsibility to steward that platform wisely, which is why sometimes Jesse and I maybe go a little bit too far in qualifying a recommendation about a particular book, or right. maybe people are like, what's the big deal with Wayne Grudem? Well, the big deal with Wayne Grudem is that he has some terrible Trinitarian theology that we have to be careful of. So people sure. might get sick of that constant hedging, that constant qualification 
vindication. Yeah, John Piper's okay, except for maybe maybe be careful when you read him on what to do with good works. Or yeah, Wayne Grudem's okay if you're talking about how to interpret Ephesians two, but don't maybe don't read him so much on how to interpret John one. People get sick of that, but it's really important because those those things can and do have eternal consequences. Um, and right. so as someone who has a platform, I try to be very careful in, in what I promote and very careful in how I qualify it. For example, the London Lyceum is a fine pad- podcast. It's very interesting. There are lots of people that they give a platform to that I would not endorse. So when you're listening to the London Lyceum, and I encourage you to do so, you should be careful and recognize that not everything, even though they say, and they are, even though they are a 1689 analytical theology Baptist podcast, not everything coming off that podcast fits that description and you should be aware of it. So just whether, you know, this was really big when like the shack came out, people were right. recommending the shack to right. their coworkers because it seemed like this sort of approachable way to, uh, to interact with, with the Trinity. And, you know, you could kind of get the gospel out of it. Um, even though their gospel in the shack was like, you should just feel better about yourself. Cause things aren't that bad. Like we love you. All of that said, like we have to be <laughs> careful about what books we recommend, what podcasts we recommend, what things we say to people. Um, it's important and we'll be accountable for it. Yeah, that's true. That's really good. I don't know why I feel like you're always just setting me up. I love that that was your denial right after I spent a good seven minutes using <laughs> our platform to rail against cloves. Hey, so, you know, cloves got to go. That's an important <laughs> PSA, Jesse. I guess so. I, mean, I, I appreciate your support on that. But w- the point you're making is, I think, actually tremendously profound because this is the way I view it. You know, we all look to others who are experts in certain things to help us where our information is lacking or a skill set is there's a gap. So, you know, like I don't try to fix the brakes on my own car. I take it to the mechanic because they're the expert. And so what we need to think about is, especially when we speak of spiritual matters to brothers and sisters, but also those who are not believers, you are the spiritual mechanic. So when you say something to somebody... Even if you feel like, well, I'm not an expert. Like, I mean, I'm just a lay person and I go to church and I try to honor the Lord. But like this person shouldn't take what I say as quote unquote gospel. They really should because they're looking to you as the one who is the representative, who is the expert in that way. And so just as Paul says, like, follow me as I follow Jesus Christ, we ought to take that seriously. And so I like that. I really like that. That's a challenge. That's again, laying down the gauntlet and saying, are you very careful with that? It doesn't mean you need to be perfect. It means you need to be careful. And right. I think actually you and I have grown in that way, I'd like to say, hopefully over this time, yeah. is when we hedge, when you hear us hedge that way, it's not because we're trying to be diplomatic. It's because we're trying to be really sensitive to the fact that we don't want somebody to be misinformed by what we're saying and to take even what we say as something that's not going to undergo a fair amount of testing according to the right. scriptures. Yeah. So that's like a really good word. That, again, better than the clove thing, but, you know... Whatever. Yeah. And and I don't think that the guys from the London Lyceum have any idea that our podcast exists. I don't think they're listeners. Maybe they are. I don't know. But that's okay. But I want to say this. Like, I'm not blasting them. This this could and does happen to all sorts of podcasters. Um, yes. You know, there there have been times it happened to us, right? We, I gave yes, a pretty exactly. a pretty rigorous defense for why I thought it was stupid that people were questioning John Cal- uh, John Calvin John Piper's soteriology, right? 
I had to backtrack on that and say, look, we used our platform to promote something that now I'm looking at and I think probably isn't on isn't on point. Right. So like it happens to all of us. I'm not blasting the London Lyceum. I think it could happen to any of us. But I'm just using that as an example to say maybe we need to think about be a little bit more careful. Right. Um, if I recommend something, this is kind of the test. I don't have kids, but this is the way I think about it. If my son came up to me and said, you know, I really like to learn about uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. You know, I might give him a couple books that are bad, like bad versions of the doctrine of the Trinity and say like, well, here's, you know, here's here, read, read this section in the institutes. Uh, here's a good book by Michael Horton or a good chapter out of Michael Horton. And he, here's Dale Tuggy. Like you should, uh, you should be familiar with uh, the wrong view as well. You should be familiar with how, how this view works. So you can, you can resist it because you're going to run right. into it. But I wouldn't just hand him four books, including one by Dale Tuggy and say, well, read these four books. And I right. think that's, you know, when I listened to that episode, I kept on waiting for them to sort of like push back a little bit. And they just never really did. I mean, they sort of did a little bit, but I think for whatever reason, their podcast, they've positioned it to be sort of like just a, an open forum of ideas. Right. Which has a value. But I would have loved to have seen like a little 15 minute thing at the end or even just a disclaimer up front that says we don't endorse Dale Tuggy's views. We actually believe that he's he's significantly drastically wrong. Here's some resources that we think really articulate a good argument for the doctrine of the Trinity or even point to some of their other episodes where they've had people on the show that gave a really good, robust theological, analytical philosophy defense of the doctrine right. of the, the Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and it just, it just wasn't there. So I'm not like saying like, Oh, these guys are terrible. They should stop podcasting. And, and also we should hit them with rocks. Uh, I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying we need to be thoughtful and careful <laughs> about our platform and how we use it. And as I said, all, all people have a platform of some sort. They all, we all have a exactly. venue that we, we platform exactly. ideas to that we promote ideas from, and we just need to use that wisely. Cause that itself is a gift from God, whatever it might be. Yes. Um, it, it's a gift from God that we have that sphere of influence. We just have to use it wisely. Yes, exactly. It's like every person has their own podcast. Right. And sometimes that's manifested in your conversation at the water cooler or over Slack or in email, whatever. But people are looking you to you as a representation of something. And so you, we just need to be careful about that. Yeah. And it, as part of like, maybe again, like to overuse that phrase, like inside baseball, you and I have talked about this, like particularly right. when it comes to podcasting, where we've said, for instance, we've talked about having some different perspectives on this podcast right. and to have, a, you know, conversations with like, I would say like classical Arminians and you and I have debated about like, well, what's the place for that? Because right. we, we don't mind having an exchange of ideas, but what we want to do is critique those ideas under right. what we believe to be the true and proper perspective that's put right. forth in the scriptures. And so we're, we don't want to abdicate the responsibility that we believe that we have to critique that idea. So right. this is like challenging thing with all of media is when you consume it to understand a little bit something about the premise and the context of what you're listening to, because the premise might just be, this is just going to be, we're just going to talk about stuff. And yep. we're not going to critique it. We're just going to talk about stuff. So you need to be careful not to get wrapped up and be convinced about argumentation under the auspice of this is just an open dialogue without the proper, you know, any idea worth expressing is also worth having constructive critique come against it. Yeah. So it, that's just a hard thing for all of media, in, including us. And yeah. speaking of media, I believe we have massively failed at keeping this really brief. <laughs> 
It's true. It's true. I'm going to start putting chapters into the podcast <laughs> so you can just skip straight past. Is that all a thing? Can you it do is. that? Oh, yeah, it is. It totally Get is. Get out of here. Yeah, you can put chapters in that basically like subdivide a single podcast into multiple file, like multiple file segments. Like a, like basically like a, uh, what am I looking for? Like a table of contents where you yeah. could skip to the thing that you want. So well, yeah. here's what I'd like to know is I can't tell if people enjoy the conversation that we have around the affirmations and denials, because I think in fairness to us, seldom do we do the affirmations and denials where it's just about like recommending a thing. And then we just yeah. talk about that thing endlessly. Although sometimes we do that, but we, we, I think we try for all of us, all of life is theology. So we're always right. processing these things that we're talking about in a theological per under like a theological purview. But maybe people don't like that. So I have no idea. Maybe people are like, for the love of God, please just get to the topic. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to say this because I said this to the Reformed Pilgrims when they were first starting out. Uh, they had their segment. They don't do it anymore, but they had their segment they called Scott Talk, which was basically them just like chatting. And they were like, we got to keep Scott Talk short. And I was like, make the podcast you like to make. Like, true. Fair this enough. is a podcast that we enjoy. And, um, I think I think people like the affirmations and denials. I hope so because most of the time people say that they enjoy it, so I'm well, not worried about it. Hopefully, what people see in this is like not only is there like you do a really great job with the production and the post stuff, and but beyond that, like this is like what would happen if you and I got together. It would start actually. We started talking well before we hit the record button it's here. True, and that could have been affirmations denials, right? Because I think we talked about some stuff that we like. We talked about yeah. some stuff that we would like to deny against. And I thought actually that was super stimulating and interesting conversation. <laughs> so, like here, here we are. Like this is what you get when Tony and I get together. Like we'd like to think if we sat down with you, whoever's listening, brothers and sisters, we sat down with you. This is what it would sound like. This is the conversation, yeah. how it would start. And then we'd probably, for lack of a better word, like ease into more deep theological and spiritual matters. But everything is always spiritual for us. So like whatever we're talking about, yeah. this is how it starts. It's funny. And then, then we'll move on to our actual topic. <laughs> It's funny, little peek behind the curtain of the Reformed Brotherhood. It's not uncommon when Jesse and I are together for one or both of our wives to remark that we've put on our podcast voice. Because because we do. We just slip into a certain like cadence and a way of talking. That's true. Um, it, it just happens. Which so. I kind of feel like, though, isn't that the strangest and maybe most well-intentioned backhanded compliment? Because... I'd like to think that the way that you and I are talking to us right now, like people might think, oh, this is Tony and Jesse, like talking like the welcome to reform. You know, that's like a podcast voice. I actually think it's just our normal voices when we get excited yeah. about talking to one another. And so what you're hearing is we record that voice, but it's also the private voice. So right. and anybody's welcome to hang out with us. So come yeah. and find us. You will. This is how I just talk. I can't help it. I don't yeah. know what happened. I don't think they mean it as a compliment, Jesse. <laughs> But but if you so want either. to take it as a compliment, I think that's probably fine. I, I know. I don't think so either. But that's like the truth of the matter is whether we're recording this or not, it's the same voice. Yeah, it's true. Isn't it? It is true. All right. Well, is. speaking of the same voice, I, I don't know how this segue works, but no, that was good. Run with it. We're going to move to our topic. Uh, we're going to probably have a long episode tonight because this is a good topic. Maybe we'll just have to stop halfway through and finish the rest of the topic uh, that's next fine. week. But, you know, I, I, I was thinking a lot. So let me tell you guys this. Let me <laughs> let me share this with the Reformed Brotherhood. <laughs> were you thinking a lot? Most I was. Most of the topics that come out of the show 
start with Jesse in one way or another. Usually it starts where like Saturday afternoon, I text Jesse and I say, what are we talking about tomorrow? And then he texts me back with this amazing topic. And we have a great, we have a great conversation about it. This one, I texted Jesse because what I, what I realized we have not done an episode on new mythology. I mean, I'm not sure exactly when the last time we did an episode on new mythology was, to be honest with you. And in some ways that is fine because the, the Bible as a whole says less about, uh, the work of the Holy spirit directly than it does about the work of especially the son, but also of the father. And so if our podcast in general reflects less explicit conversation about the Holy Spirit, I'm okay with that. But at the same time, the Holy Spirit is a person of the Trinity who frequently gets almost just ignored and right. frequently is the subject of really bad corruptions within theology. So before we start, I want to recommend a really, really good book. This is like the gold standard book on the Holy Spirit. And it's not Mike Horton's uh, Rediscovering the Holy Spirit, although I do strongly recommend that book as well. So good. This is more of the classic text. This is what you're going to get in a good seminary. This is uh, The Holy Spirit by Sinclair Ferguson. It's published by IVP. It's in the Contours of Christian Theology series. It's phenomenal. It's really hard to find a good a good treatment of the doctrine of the Holy spirit that is not just riddled with like random other nonsense about, uh, Pentecostalism. Not that that stuff's not important to talk about, but so much of what the, what books about the Holy spirit get stuck on is the gifts of the Holy spirit and Pentecostalism and, and you know, those kinds of questions. Cause those are the controversial questions, right? But this book by Sinclair Ferguson, it really is more just a baseline systematic theology treatment of it. So, pick it up. It's very good. It's not that long. Um, and Sinclair Ferguson is such a great writer that he makes it really easy to read about really difficult topics. So I wanted to do this, this episode and here's where this is where it's funny is even the topic itself, even though I said like, let's do something about something in new mythology. Jesse was the one that texted back and like, what about this? So this is how it works. Like Jesse and I come up with topics together that we think work. And a lot of times it is, you know, this would be like if Jesse and I said, I was like, you know, man, we really need to talk about the Holy spirit. And Jesse was like, why don't we talk about how the Holy spirit applies redemption? Like, why don't we talk about the Ordo Salutis and the Holy spirit's role in that? (laughs) Right. That's the kind of thing that would just happen at the Christmas table, like the Christmas dinner table, or when we're hanging out, you know, (laughs) on the couch drinking beer afterwards. Right. (laughs) So we want to talk a little bit about specifically the Ordo Salutis and how it is that the Holy Spirit is involved in each step of the Ordo Salutis. Right. And so kind of the prerequisite, prerequisite listening for this would be to go back, listen to our episode on theology proper. The very first episode we did, I think it was like episode 10 on, I called it Potterology, but it's theology proper. It, we really kind of talk about the attributes of God and divine simplicity and how all of the works of the Trinity outside of the Trinity, the ad extra works of the Trinity are all united. There's not anything that the father does in creation or, or outside externally oriented from the Trinity that the son and the spirit are also not participators in or operative in. 
So listen to that, and then also listen to the episode on the Ordo Salutis that we did. Um, we're not going to spend a lot of time like defending a particular Ordo Salutis just because we already did that, and we, we don't have a lot of time to do that. But you have to understand how those two concepts work before anything that we're about to say is going to make any sense. Right. Yeah, that's well said. I, I like this topic at the risk of talking more about what we're going to talk about. I like this because there is a contemporary expression of salvation which I would say ousts to some degree the role of the Holy Spirit. Because in many places where the Lord Jesus Christ is acknowledged, I'm saying literally acknowledged as the only Savior for sinners, the teaching of the day is that Christ has made it possible for men to be saved, right. but that they themselves must decide whether they will be saved. And the prevailing idea is that Christ is offered to man's acceptance and that he must accept Christ as a personal savior or give his heart to Jesus or take his stand for Christ, whatever yeah. it is. And if the blood of the cross is to avail for his sins. So according to this conception, the finished work of Christ, the greatest work of all time and in all the universe is left contingent on the fickle will of man as to whether it shall be a success or a failure. And I think at the, really at the outset here, we have to ask, is the Holy Spirit, does the Holy Spirit have a mission? Right. And is he effectual in bringing about that mission? So I like this topic because I think what it does is it, it, it basically forces us to wrestle with what is the proper and true role of the Holy Spirit in the process of redemption as reflected in the Ordo Salutis. Yeah. And so not to recap too much, but there are various ways to draw up the Ordo Salutis. And when we say Ordo Salutis, what we're talking about is the logical order of you might call them the steps of salvation as they apply to each believer's life. Right. So there's there's the Historia Salutis, which is like all of the historical things and prehistorical, not like dinosaurs, but like pre-temporal things that happened outside of the believer that don't actually really have a lot to do directly with the believer uh, in terms of their experience, their, their actual subjective experience of salvation. Right. So the decree of God, the election of God, the historical realities of the fall, the historical events of the cross, the resurrection, the coming of the Holy Spirit, those are historical realities that are part of how salvation operates, but they're not they're not subjectively experienced by the believer. As much as I can read about the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost, I'm never going to experience the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost. I never will. Because that happened 2,000 years ago. I wasn't alive then. It's not like I'm going to have some sort of experience in heaven where I get like transported back in time. But the Ordo Salutis, what we talk about is we talk about the discrete steps or discrete events in the, the the process of being saved that every believer undergoes. And we believe that because God is a logical God, he's a God of order, that those steps, they happen in a certain order for a certain reason. Yes. And that that order is, is standard because it's a necessary order. Right. So here's an example. We talked about this during uh, the Lord's Supper episode. When we talked about Lutheranism. We kind of briefly mentioned that Lutherans believe uh, broadly speaking, that all of the benefits of salvation are a result of justification. And so union with Christ for the Lutherans comes out of justification. God justifies us by fiat. And then because of that justification, we're legally right. And be, so then we can be sanctified. Then we can be united with Christ. Where the Reformed believe, mostly, that union with Christ is sort of the, the genesis point of all of the other belief, all of the other 
uh, benefits of salvation, even right. though they don't necessarily, they're not directly caused by union with Christ. And so when we talk about the Ordo Salutis, we're talking about kind of this sequence of events that we have to recognize. And this is, this is actually a critique that uh, Sinclair Ferguson makes in all sorts of places. We tend to think of these in sequential order because our brains have to do that in order to think that way. And that leads us to sort of think that like this happens first and then this happens and then this happens. We think of it chronologically. Most of these things actually happen at the same instant in time. Right. Uh, even though we have to recognize that there is a logical dependency that yes. happens sort of outside of the concept of time, there are certain things that have to happen first and certain things that have to happen second in order for this to even make sense. So that's what we mean when we talk about the Ordo Salutis. And there are all sorts of different ways to uh, to draw that up. There's good arguments for different uh, patterns. But the main broad steps that we look at as, as Reformed Christians, we look at regeneration, we look at uh, justification, union with Christ, and this isn't right. necessarily the order that it happens in, logically or temporally, but re regeneration, justification, union with Christ, sanctification, and then glorification. Those are kind of the big buckets that we look at. And most of those big buckets can be subdivided into other smaller, smaller options, smaller options, smaller segments to further kind of dive into it. So for example, sanctification can be broken up into vivification and mortification, right? Glorification, right. you can talk about the initial glorification in heaven and then the, the ultimate glorification on the new earth when the you know you have a glorified body and a spirit. So we're going to focus on those big picture ones and we're going to talk about kind of what the Holy Spirit does in each of those um, kind of steps of, of this order of salvation. I like that. I mean, I think the proper way maybe to think about that or maybe a, to use a metaphor would be, you know, in this day and age, we're familiar with all kinds of software processes that use algorithms to do a lot of stuff all at once. But even the thing that happens in a single second, the microseconds, there's a logical order to everything that's happening in that immediate transaction or that immediate right. code. And so you can have something that happens all at once, but that thing that happens all at once may be like 50 steps that happen behind the scene that right. they're so closely entwined together that especially when we talk about the, in the spiritual context, that they're in a sense all happening together, but there still is a logical order because if you separate right. the order, then they can't actually happen in the way that they're supposed to. Right. And so I think that what might be challenging for some is that to ask the question, well, where is the Holy Spirit in all of this? Right. The, the unique economy of the Trinity, if we subdivide some of the responsibilities of the Godhead in understanding what each brings to this process, we should be able to articulate that. And this makes it a little bit more difficult and perhaps more challenging with respect to the Holy Spirit. So that's why this is great. And, and by the way, for those who, again, which is everybody cannot see Tony right now. First, you should know that whenever he recommends a book, that book is actually <laughs> present. It's actually being held up to the camera. He's holding up to me. Uh, but second, I saw before we started this, that he has this beautiful diagram that's part and part, part and parcel of like this process of thinking through all of this wonderful stuff about the order of Salutis. It can get complicated, but I think what we're after is what are like the major themes here and how does the Holy Spirit fit into, actually, that's a, that's a horrible way of saying it. How do we understand the work of the Holy Spirit? Because we're not trying to fit the Godhead right. into certain discrete actions. We're trying to understand how does the Godhead in the wonderful economy of the Godhead work out salvation in our own lives, not right. just like in a theological sense, not just like in this idea of, 
Well, let's let's think about what's cerebrally stimulating and posit all kinds of ideas and write all this stuff down. We're talking about at the root where the shoe leather is. How do we get to the place where what is the Holy Spirit doing in our lives that brings about justification, sanctification? Yeah. And that that chart that uh, Jesse's referring to is called a golden chain. It's um, it's a visual catechism by William Perkins. So good. Most of what we think of when we talk about the Reformed Ordo Salutis actually sort of finds its genesis point in this document by William Perkins. Not not that he was the first person to draw up an Ordo Salutis, but most of contemporary Reformed theology traces itself back to this particular Ordo Salutis that Perkins came up with. Um, so I'm not going to go much further in depth with that. But generally speaking, when we think about the Trinity operating in in or add extra right to the outside of the Trinity. Right. Some people would say that the, the Father, the Son and the Spirit each do the exact same work where I think more reformed thinking would say not more as in like it's more reformed, but more as in most of the reformed world would say that the Father, Son and the Spirit each do the same work, but they each do a particular part of that work. Yes, they, they're exactly. each operative, and that they keep on saying that word. And sometime we'll have to dig into that a little bit more. But they each operate in every external work of the Trinity by doing the part of that work or the 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 portion. Even that's not the right word. They each work the work in a way that's appropriate to their person. And so, generally speaking, we say that the Father is the planner of the work, right? He's the one that decrees election. He, he, he sort of initiates the work. He's the fountain of the work. The son is the one who actually accomplishes that work. And the spirit typically is the one who applies that work or kind of brings it to its final effect. And so when we look at the Genesis one account, it's the father who speaks. The son is the one who is the spoken word through whom creation is. And the spirit is the one who hovers over the water to bring it to its fullness or to its fruition. Right. When we talk about the, the application of, of redemption, the same thing holds true. So I want to read it because I want to get the exact wording because I think it's important. But in question uh, 29 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it says, how are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? And I got to be honest, when I started memorizing the catechism, I would have given a different answer than this. Right. I would have given an answer that was very focused on man's role in, in in faith, in all of these different things from our perspective that happen as far as how redemption is appropriated to the believer. But what the catechism here says is an answer is we are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by his Holy Spirit. Right on. And so this this threefold work of God threefold action in redemption where the father plans and initiates the work, the son accomplishes it and the Holy spirit applies that to, to the believer or brings that to fruition in time and in creation. That's really important for us because all of, all of what we talk about from now is going to just be footnotes to that statement, right? right? When we talk about regeneration, we're going to, we're going to talk about how the spirit applies the new life that Christ obtained for his people to us, right? When we talk about glorification, we're going to talk about how he applies the glorified humanity that Christ won on the cross to his people, right? So even if you stop listening now, if you don't want to buckle up for another 30 minutes of this, that's that's the answer, right? That's the answer is the, the Holy Spirit applies salvation to us. And right. then, you know, the catechism goes on to talk about how exactly that works. But that's the answer that we want to dig into now. 
Right. Yeah. Uh, that's right on point because like the genesis of this idea, well, like, no pun intended is again, that like the Holy spirit as a, as the person of God actually has a mission and a ministry mm-hmm. and it's in connection, particularly with the preaching of the gospel. So when the gospel of Christ is faithfully preached, the Holy spirit convicts men of sin and reveals to them the need of a savior. And that is so fundamental to what we're speaking about with the order salutis. And the theory, I think again, not to rehash this a bit, but of modern evangelicals, either explicitly or implicitly, is that the sinner has to cooperate with the Spirit and that the Christian must yield to the Spirit's striving or he cannot be saved. And there are two theological problems with that viewpoint. To argue that the natural man is capable of cooperating with the Spirit is, of course, to deny that he's actually dead in trespass and right. sin because a dead man is incapable of doing anything. Yeah. And to say that the operations of the Spirit in a man's heart and conscience may be resisted, withstood, is to deny his omnipotence. Now, of course, like I'm sure people are going to say, well, what about all these scriptures that seem to indicate that the Holy Spirit's mission may be resisted and thwarted? So we look at like Genesis 6, 3, which says, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in men forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Or Acts 7, 5, which says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. But I think what you're driving at here is where we understand the order of Seleucus is, is the natural man, as he naturally exists, does resist, deny, and fight against the Holy Spirit. The external work of the Spirit, his testimony through the scriptures, as it falls on the outward ear of the natural man, is always resisted and rejected, which only affords this solemn and full demonstration of the awful fact that the carnal mind is at enmity against God. So... It's almost as if in a way, I, I feel like I bring all this up to say, as we talk about this, I sense sometimes that people think, well, when you're saved, that's when the Holy Spirit suddenly makes his appearance. Right. Then yeah. he's suddenly effectual and active. But until that point where you're quote unquote saved, whatever that means, whether there's an altar involved or you come and you lay yourself down, you surrender, you pray a certain prayer of specific words or otherwise, only then does the spirit get involved? But I think what we're saying is that's actually a fundamental misunderstanding right. of the Holy Spirit and his work. Yeah. And I'll be honest, like that's the impression that I walked away from in my Lutheran, walked away with in my Lutheran uh, catechism classes when I was in a Lutheran church, is that the work of the Holy Spirit really starts in the believer's life when you surrender yourself and you have this second baptism of the Holy Spirit. Mm. And I don't want to fall down that road of like making this show all about the controversial stuff. We, we blasted sure. on that before, but that's the impression that I think most people in a lot of churches reformed or otherwise they come away with. Is that like the Holy spirit really, he gets involved after you're already a Christian, right? It's Jesus that does all the hard work yes. before you're a Christian and the Holy yes. spirit really just kind of comes along. And that's where we get this like sort of teaching that like the Holy spirit's kind of like a life coach, right? He kind of like gives you the, the, the right direction. And maybe he like helps train you a little bit to really get the work done. But that's kind of where where he's limited. And that's why I think it's so important. And that's what I love that you're saying is the work of the Holy Spirit is always resisted until he overcomes it. Yes. And and this, this is some reform people are like, oh, they're like going to freak out when they hear me say that. But what I mean by this is the Holy Spirit overcomes the resistance of humanity by changing their will. By giving them a new life that seeks and desires to follow the Lord. And the the distilling theology guys actually made this um, point on their 
uh, episode on on Irresistible Grace. They just went through Tulip and, and they did a great job. But they made the point that the resist Irresistible Grace is almost the wrong term because right. it really is more about the fact that it's not that it's not that we can't resist the grace. It's that God changes us so we no longer want to. And so, so this is the first step of salvation, right? This is the effectual calling. This is regeneration, which depending on who you ask may or may not be the same thing, but they're definitely related is the Holy spirit in the work of salvation. The first thing that he does, or one of the first things he does is he creates faith in us in our effectual calling. So, so effectual calling is this complex of things that involves enlightening our minds and the knowledge of Christ, renewing our wills so that we're able to freely embrace Jesus Christ offered in the gospel. There's all these, this wonderful, uh, catechetical language in the catechism that, that just helps really frame this up. But the, the main point of what the spirit does in regeneration is he takes a heart of stone and he replaces it with a heart of flesh. He overcomes our will by replacing it with a will that desires to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all of that talk about resisting the Lord's will, resisting the spirit, that's all true language that the scripture is using. But in relation to uh, salvation and redemption specifically, that resistance is removed by the Holy Spirit. And that's what we call regeneration. At least part of it is he creates in us a desire to follow and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. And then out of that new desire, we actually do that. Yes. And that's what makes it a miracle, right? Like, so when we underemphasize the work of the Holy Spirit, sometimes salvation can seem mundane. It seems like it could be just a set of steps that if you do these certain things and you're guaranteed to, of course, receive salvation or receive the outward appearance of salvation. But the quickening, if we, if we view it the way that you just said it, which I think is hundred percent accurate, the quickening of those who are dead in trespasses is the work of the third person of the Trinity. That which is born of the spirit is the spirit. That's why John says it that way. So the natural man is spiritually dead. He is alive, sinward, in worldward, but dead, Godward. He's alienated from the life of God. And so unless a person is born from above, he is completely devoid of spiritual discernment. So the work of the spirit in regeneration is a divine miracle. And I think sometimes that that's like in a bear market right now, this idea yeah. that like that is just a miracle. And so it's the result of the spirit's exercise of supernatural power. It's the quickening of a spiritual corpse. It is the bringing of a dead soul to life. And so I just happened to pull this up because what you said reminded me so so eloquently of what S.C. Pierce wrote. And I just want to read this quote. He says, the same power which was put forth to raise Christ from the dead is put forth in regeneration. Christ's resurrection is the exemplary pattern of our spiritual resurrection, according to which as the spirit wrought in him, so he works in us a work conformed to his resurrection. As the resurrection of Christ was the great declaration of his being the son of God, so in the regeneration of our being the sons of God, being the evidence of our adoption are also the first discovery of our election. As Christ's resurrection is the first step to his eternal kingdom and glory, so regeneration is the first open introduction to all the blessings of the state of grace into which the child of God is now introduced. Yeah. 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 You know, I was at a conference with Rick Phillips. Uh, I was the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology, and he was talking about the Ordo Salutis. And he made a point that I, I think that I need to maybe think about a little bit more. So take this as one of those. I'm not 100% sure yet moments of stewarding my platform well. 
But he made the point that when we think about the Ordo Salutis, because of the way we have to diagram the Ordo Salutis, we think about it in a certain way. And so we think about it as these steps from one, one to the next. And he did something on the, the whiteboard that I thought was really interesting. Instead, what he did is he drew a line, just a, a straight line across the board. And he pointed at it and he said, this is the new life. This is the new life that the Holy Spirit gives us in regeneration. And as this new life progresses from its, its beginning point to its, its end point, or, or into eternity, it does certain things along the way. And he said, the first thing that it does is it unites you to Christ, right? And, and then after it's united you to Christ, it now, it now trusting in that Christ in whom you are united to, uh, now what it does is it applies justification because right. that's just what it does. And then, and, and then not as a consequence of justification, but also as the same new life, the same principle of new life moving from beginning to end, it also sanctifies. It's all sanctification is just this new life existing the way new life does, right? When when a baby comes out of the womb and it and it's healthy, it cries because that's what it does because it's breathing, right? So so if a baby doesn't cry, we know something's wrong. Right? Right. I mean, that's the same kind of thing. And you could sort of look at this the same way. If a new Christian doesn't do good works, you know something's wrong. And so I, I think probably what we're going to do, I'm, I'm making one of those executive decisions. Jesse and I are co-executives, <laughs> but he can't stop me because I'm just doing it. Co-managers. Uh, co-managers, yes. I'm really more of the day-to-day. Jesse <laughs> seems to be more of the big picture. Man, we're getting a lot of these like veiled like like yes. sitcom references. Anyways. Yes. We're going to stop now. We're going to pause. Next week, we will finish the remainder of what we've talked about in terms of this Ordo Salutis and the Holy I love Spirit. It. So, so just to summarize where we've come now, the Holy Spirit in the, the work of redemption applies all of the benefits of Christ to us, all of them. And the very first benefit that Christ has obtained for his people is the new resurrection life which Amen. he was granted by the father, right? Because of the, or through the Holy spirit. When we look at the way the scripture talks about the resurrection of Christ, it is primarily phrased as a passive event. Now, now that's not to say that the son was not active in the resurrection, right? Because all three persons of the Trinity are, are equally operative in all of the external works of the Trinity. But the way that the scripture talks about the resurrection of Christ is more appropriate to say that Jesus was raised with kind yes. of parentheses right. by the, by the father in right. the power of the Holy spirit. than it is to say that Jesus raised himself. That's true. There are things in the scriptures that point to that. Jesus says he lays his life down, takes it back up again. So that's true. But the primary way the scripture talks about it is as a, an action which Christ received from outside of himself. Yes. Right. Anthropomorphically speaking. And the, the agent doing that was the father and the agency through which he did it was the Holy Spirit. And so the same principle of new life, which the spirit infused into this, into the son, the new life that he, the new resurrection life that was granted to the son because of his status as the righteous son of God, as the righteous second Adam, that same new life is infused and imparted into the life of those who the spirit has, who, who the father has chosen. The spirit applies that to them. That's what we're talking about when we talk about resurrection. Yes. And the very first thing that this new life does is it embraces Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel. 
Right. And so that's where we'll start next week is we'll start with union with Christ and kind of what that looks like and what that does and what that means and how out of that union with Christ, not as a direct result, not a cause and effect, but as a as a consequence of being united to Christ. That's where justification and sanctification and glorification all kind of find their fullest definition, their fullest expression, I think. Man, cut to like every Puritan who just set up right now when you said, we're going to start with union in Christ. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's John so Calvin, good. John Calvin is so proud of me. Yeah, they, there's no doubt that he is. That, I mean, we don't that, endorse ne- necromancy. John Calvin has no idea what I just said. Yeah, that's true. That's factually correct. Um, I hope that people have perceived that this has been somewhat of like an unusual episode because while we've been having a conversation, as is per the usual, we've also been like planning the epi- this episode in future episodes, <laughs> and we just also self-edited. So that's also unique. And so you're getting to see like a meeting is happening, planning is happening, all at the same time that we're delivering a podcast episode to you. Next week's episode is already more planned out than most of our episodes are <laughs> just because of what just happened, which is, is a result great, of our poor planning for this episode. Yeah, this is great, though. I, at this point, I want to totally appropriate the Kool-Aid man. I, I, we, I've kind of like danced around this. We talked around this. I'm just totally appropriating him now because with I would say with full respect to the psalmist who said that my God can help me leap over a wall, why not just run through it with the by the power of the Holy Spirit and just say, oh yeah, because I think that when we talk about this stuff, I'm already so excited for the next episode. And honestly, here's the beauty of this. I, my, the way that I can see over this at the risk of maybe this coming out slightly blasphemous, though I don't mean it to be, is that I think the beauty, the genius of God is that in the Trinity, at any given point in time with a certain acts of acts of the Trinity, all of them are involved in every single act. And yet it seems clear that some different person of the Trinity takes point at certain times. And so what you just said, the great comfort is the same resurrection that Jesus Christ himself received because it was by the power of the Holy Spirit from the Father means that it's the same resurrection that we also receive, that we are not God. And so therefore we cannot raise ourselves from the dead. It's only because of the way that God has orchestrated that resurrection, which comes by his command through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we also will receive it ourselves, but only because that's the way it works. If it worked any other way, we would not be able to be recipients of that. And so God is so good that there is the Trinity and every part of the Trinity is at work in every aspect of the Trinity. And yet at the same time, certain parts of the Trinity take different economical points at certain times in certain actions. So that is like, I mean, like if you, if you're able to run through a wall, like if you're going to run through a wall, is it not because of this kind of thing? Like, I guess I'm just trying to make this thing work at this point. You know, it, it, that's one of those Bible verses that I heard you reference it. And I kind of was like, (laughs) he's gotta be remembering something wrong. There's gotta be something Something is not right in that reference, but Psalm eighteen twenty nine leap over says, the wall. For by you speaking to God, for by you I can run against a troop. Yep. I don't know what that means, and by my God I can leap over a wall. There we go. So I feel like if if this podcast ever comes to a conclusion, and we start another <laughs> podcast. I don't know why we would stop this podcast and start another podcast, but if for Brandy. some reason we did, then instead of honor everyone, love the brotherhood, it would be like, by my God, I can leap over a wall. <laughs> I don't know what that podcast would be called. 
But, I mean, I, I've heard that verse applied both wonderfully, like masterfully in context. I've heard it applied, of course, completely out of context. But this, that what's being expressed there is something absolutely beautiful. It really I, is. I don't know what it is, but it's beautiful. It really is. I, I really wish, though, that like God in his sovereignty, through the power of the Holy Spirit, had ordained that the words were actually, by my God, I can run through a wall because that would just make me feel, it would just connect this idea of like the Kool-Aid man. Like maybe what we need is like, we need, I, like I'm envisioning a t-shirt or something where it's like the Kool-Aid man busting through the wall, but it's like, praise God. Like instead yeah. of like the, oh yeah. <laughs> you know, I remember there was a great podcast uh, that did an episode on bad Christian t-shirts. <laughs> So I think it was the Fast God Stuff podcast. Yeah, that's that is factually correct. We didn't include that one, but we might that's as true. well. So, well, well Jesse, I would say this has been British wow. Bake Off style. That was so good, right there. Yeah, I thought that's where you were going with the. I'm going to bring it full circle. I thought that's where you're going with the J.C. Ryle stuff to begin with, like that he is like the spiritual equivalent of like the British Bake Off, where everything on the British Bake Off there there is like critique, but it's like super veiled and very polite. It's kind of like. I wish this were better than it was. Um, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like it's that kind of thing. I was like, this was so delicious. And yeah, I wish it were better than it actually was. Like it's that kind of thing. So it's like JC Rob being like, do you lack power in your life? Do you feel like you are subpar? That's because you ought to pray more wink. It's because you're a prayerless idiot. <laughs> the one episode that I watched of the British Bake Off, uh, there was, a, I'm not sure if this, this must not be typical, but they made some sort of biscuit that was supposed to be covered in chocolate and they didn't do it right. And the woman actually said, oh, that's dreadful. <laughs> but even that sounds like, does that sound more polite than like, that oh, was yeah. awful. Yeah, that oh, sucked. Yeah. That yeah. was ridiculous. Like it's, I, we just watched the final episode of like the most recent season last night, actually. They made this thing. The technical challenge was like, it was like a, a biscuit, which I'm going to say cookie. Come on, people. It's a cookie. But then there was this cone of, uh, oh my goodness, it was something coffee, like a coffee cream. Then they put marshmallow. And I didn't even know you could like make marshmallow in your kitchen. Like, I, obviously, this seems like you should be able to do that. But for me, I was like, marshmallows made in a factory. What the <laughs> heck? You can't make marshmallow on your stove. But like, then, so it was cookie, a cone, and they were very specific, cone of this like amazing coffee cream, then a cone of marshmallow, then dipped in chocolate. I was like, yes, you are British, but I will eat that. Yeah. That sounds amazing. Yeah. My pancreas is not in favor of that, but I probably would do it anyways. <laughs> Your pancreas. Yeah. Well, before we get uh, off on another sidetrack about British Bake Off or whatever. I don't even know what to do with that. <laughs> Jesse, here's what you do with it. Until uh, next time. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.